Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for the love of Jesus and your love that comes to us through Jesus. You are our refuge, O God, and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult, because there's a river, not an ocean, not a big, terrible, horrible, dragon-infested ocean. There's a river of peace that flows through the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, and it is you and your love in Jesus. You are with us, O God of Jacob, O our refuge. You make wars to cease to the ends of the earth. You wreak wreak havoc in the world and bring wars to an end. You break the bow and shatter the spear and burn the chariot with fire. We will be still and know that you are God. You are exalted among the nations. You are exalted in the earth. You, O God of Jacob, you, O Lord of hosts, are with us, our refuge. And you have been these five years in the life of Jubilee Community Church. And we praise you. And my plea now is that for another five and another five and another five, Until Jesus comes, your hand would be on this church for good. There would be strength here, hope here, joy here, and overflowing power for the neighborhoods around this church. God, be pleased to make this a fruitful place so that people come and fall down on their faces here and say, God is in this place. I want to know the God of Jubilee. Grant, O God, that this people would love each other. Spare them disunity. Let nothing be broken here, but things healed here and put together. And so may they have an overflowing impact for the glory of Christ in these cities and for the globe, Lord. We love these flags. We love the fact that they care about the nations here and the nations beyond the borders of this place. So enlarge their vision and enlarge their fruitfulness, I pray, in the years to come. Keep their leaders faithful. Keep them pure. Keep them strong. Keep them in love with Jesus. May the people be responsive, submissive, and ready to move with the vision, Lord. You are a great and kind and good shepherd. And when you appear, you will give the crown of glory. Hasten that day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. To be a part of your fifth anniversary now is an honor to me and a pleasure. One of the reasons it is, is because John Erickson, your lead pastor's friend, I was Digging back, John, in the journal that I have kept over the years and uh, stumbled upon, for example, 17 years ago, that's 1998, um, 
John came to me and he had a word of counsel about one of my sons and a relationship that he was in at the time. It was a sober, cautionary counsel and proved to be very wise. And so our lives have been woven together at some pretty heartfelt levels. It was another one. In the year 2000, we were away at one of those retreats you referred to. And uh, I was in one of my pastoral funks and feeling discouraged and not knowing how to manage growth. And there were, I think there were about 1,700 folks coming to Bethlehem at the time. And I didn't have a big plan and didn't know what to do, build, multiply campuses, plant churches. What am I going to do? I don't, I don't have a clear word from God. And, and John, in his usual way said, well, I just think we should plan for 4,000 people in five years. Just like that. I mean, he's, he's the high school guy. <laughs> and I have loved that visionary, positive, encouraging side of him. I, I love the vision of All Nations Christian Fellowship when they went out from Bethlehem that John led, and I loved when Jubilee came into being. I loved that. So to, uh, to be a part of your life and your family. And therefore, this has been a great privilege. We talked, John and I talked about what I should talk about here. Uh, Among the two or three things he mentioned was this fact that this church felt the pain and the sorrow of the loss of Alex Stedham six weeks ago, 22 years old, in Northern Ireland, on a mission trip, son of Chuck Stedham, my 20-year associate in worship, drops dead. Chuck is not home to be with his wife when that horrible phone call comes. His sister was with him in Northern Ireland. And uh, Chuck is fishing with me in the Boundary Waters when his son is dead. And... We get back to the parking lot on our way home. Canoes are all put away, and uh, there's a note, call home. And John thought, perhaps, growing out of that loss and that experience, there might be a word for you. And so that's what I prayed about most, and that's what I'm going to do. Seemed good to me that I should take perhaps one of the texts that I shared with Chuck. Um, after the 30 minutes of weeping and hugging and unbelief in the parking lot, we decided, okay, I'll sit in the back of truck, the Chuck's truck with him. My son Barnabas will drive and Marshall will ride shotgun and we'll just skip lunch and blaze to Minneapolis from about six hours away. And so I had six hours with the dad in his back seat who had just lost his son and spent ten minutes on the phone with his wife. And I'm going to take one of those texts and 
Nothing can replace the Word of God in those moments of life-shaking loss, right? Other things are crucial. Tears are crucial. Heartfelt, authentic empathy is crucial. Touch and hugging are crucial. Prayer is crucial. Silence is crucial. But nothing can replace the Word of God. When all around our soul gives way, God speaks. He has something to say. And we need it more than we need anything else. As good as those things are, as necessary as those things are, we need God through His Word because we need an unshakable rock. I'm not unshakable. Saying nice things about His Son is not unshakable. Trucks and fishing and wives and family are not unshakable. One thing is unshakable. God in His Word. So I want to ask you, do you have a few precious, unshakable, deep, go-to texts? Words from Almighty God ready to serve you when the phone call comes. Either to you or to somebody you love that you're standing right beside. Do you have one or two or three of those ready, go-to, mighty, unshakable words of God? Because I want to give you one. Spend our time on it. Encourage you to go home and memorize it this afternoon. It's not long. And then be ready. Be ready for when the doctor says, I think we better do a biopsy. And when the phone call comes. So Jubilee is a five-year-old church, your baby church. Glorious, strong, God-blessed, impactful, committed, truthful baby church. And I'm looking out here with a good many people about Alex's age. Which means there's not necessarily a granted future for you tomorrow. Because he was as... Nobody knows to this moment why he died. This is so frustrating for parents. So, I want you to be ready. I want to help you get ready. And I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to do three verses. Two of them are the go-to text. The other one is a a verse that says, use the go-to text. (laughs) That's the way Paul set it up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'll tell you why. I mean, this is a text I gave Chuck in the back seat of the truck on the way home, among many others. But that's not the reason mainly why I'm preaching on it, mainly is because it became one of my go-to texts in 2005. December 21, 2005, I'm sitting in Dr. Heller's office over at, where are we? Uh, Over at uh, Abbott. 
And uh, after a routine exam, he looks at me and he says, I think we better do a biopsy on your prostate. I said, oh, really? Uh, uh, why? Well, just a little irregularity. When? Now. You got time? Whatever you say. You're the doctor. He said, okay, put that gown on, and I'll be back in about 10 minutes. 10 minutes alone with God. Do you have a word ready? Can you preach to yourself for 10 minutes about what does this mean? It was cancer. So it became a, this text is the one God gave me in that 10 minutes. And it was powerful. Those were a sweet and wonderful 10 minutes. It's chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 9 and 10. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we wake or sleep, live or die, we might live with him. Or, to paraphrase it as it came to me, John Piper, putting on that embarrassing white robe slit down the back. John Piper, you are mine. And I am your father. And I have not destined you for wrath. What you are now facing is not wrath. Get that, John? (laughs) I get that. There will be no wrath for you. Instead, you are appointed by my sovereign decree for salvation. And this is sure and solid and unshakable Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through your Lord Jesus Christ. He died for you, John. He died for you. So that whether you wake or die of cancer, you will live with him. You got that? It's okay. I got everything under control here. You do. Can you preach to yourself that text? I want you to be able to when you go to bed tonight. That's my goal. Once you hear this message on this text, go home, take about five minutes to memorize it, repeat it every day for about a week or two, have it, nail it, say it once a week after that, and then you'll be ready. Good to have more than one, but one is enough. One is enough. 
Verse 11 is simply God's way of saying, this precious, powerful, solid, unshakable, verses 9 and 10, are not just for you, it's for others. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. In other words, verses 9 and 10, and other things in this letter, are designed by God for you as a go-to word, first to preach to yourself in the crisis, then to deliver, to deliver to others. And notice, there's, there's nothing about preaching in verse 11. Like, doing what I'm doing now, I'm doing verse 11 now, but I'm, that's not because verse 11 told me to do this. It's because verse 11 says one-to-one. I mean, you don't have to know Greek to see this, but if you, if you could read the Greek, you'd really see it. You can see it as it is, one another, one another. In the Greek, it's heiston hannah, heiston hannah, heiston hannah. One, the one, one, the one. <laughs> like so, okay, there's you, there's me, and pff, there's this verse right between us right now. I'm going, and you're hearing, and rise up, be encouraged, be strong, be built up, because one on one, I have spoken to you the word of God. That's what you're supposed to be for each other, right? So, verse 11 tells you to go home today and memorize it, because even though you all have these these Bibles in your pocket. The power factor is ten times greater when you don't have to reach for it in the crisis. And you just go right to the eyes. Yes, it is. So, that's not a big assignment for this afternoon. It's a small one, and you can do it. Between the football plays or whatever. So let's walk through the text very slowly. Let's savor it as we go so that you can just, I hope, by God's Spirit, feel right now the wonder of what this text is for you and what it will be in the moment when the phone call comes or the biopsy is announced and then the call comes the next day. Why don't you and your wife come in here and talk to me because you have cancer. God, verse 9, you with me? God has not destined us for wrath. Now, why not? Or what does that mean? Does that mean he's not the kind of God that gets mad like that? He's not the kind of God that has wrath. So you don't have to worry about being destined for wrath. God's not a God of wrath. So relax. I mean, that is the the total way of millions of Christians. Chuck, Alex's dad, told me a few years ago that he went to a worship leader conference where they said explicitly, we will not sing this Sovereign Grace song, Your blood has washed away my sin, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. We will not sing that. We don't believe in that wrath stuff. I hate wrath songs. That's what they said at the worship conference. And they would not sing 
in Christ alone. Judge Chuck told me this when he got home. They boycotted these songs. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love, this righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We're not singing that. So my question is, is that why verse 9 says what it says? You're not destined for wrath. There ain't any wrath. He's not that kind of God. We don't have a God who gets angry. Or, is the meaning of verse 9, yes, God gets angry, and yes, God is angry at sin and sinners, and you, Alex Stedham, will not experience it. That's not your destiny. What's the answer? Turn to chapter 1, verse 9, to see the answer. Is it, there ain't no God of wrath, or yes, there is, but you're not going to experience it. Chapter 1, verse 9, you turned... I'm in the middle of verse 9. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's why verse 9 says what it says. There is wrath coming and you'll be delivered. Alex, John Piper, and every one of you who is safe in Christ by faith alone. Christ is my refuge, my rock. I'm safe. When the, when the horrible wrath breaks over the world, I will be safe. I am not destined for wrath. Nor does anything negative that happens to me in this world come from wrath. He's my Father. He's reconciled. It's fatherly discipline, whatever form it takes. But it is not wrath. Just to confirm more widely in Scripture, John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 2.5, Because of your heart and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will, will, will be revealed. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the Bible is so amazingly honest and realistic about God. There's wrath coming upon this world. And you do not have to experience it. You might say, it would be a reasonable response, you know, all this talk, I mean, you, you're, that, that's church talk, but out there in the world, up and down these streets and people on TV, Taylor Swift, whatever her name is, uh, over there in uh, St. Paul, they don't think much about this. 
And if you try to say it to them, like, hey, there's a rescue from wrath, that they will just look at you like, you come from another planet. You, you come from another world. That, I'm, not, I'm not worried about wrath. I don't even think there is such a thing. And therefore, it doesn't fit in my worldview at all. If you ask, what's the point of even talking about this in the modern world? Because the modern world cannot connect with this. They don't even have this problem. So what, how can the gospel be good news to deliver them from something they don't even think exists? You know what the Bible says to that objection? The Bible says, oh, they know it exists. They know. And you need to tell them how to escape. I'll show you where it says that. It's in Romans 1. It goes like this. You remember in Romans 1, um, it says, everybody knows God but they have suppressed the knowledge of God. Though they knew Him, they did not glorify Him or worship Him. They exchanged the glory of God for images. They have suppressed the knowledge of God. So everybody you meet on every street in Minneapolis knows God. Deep down under their suppressing arguments and their suppressing addictions and their suppressing behaviors and their suppressing preferences, they know God. So the Bible says, operate on that assumption. They know God. They also know something else, according to chapter 1, verse 32. Listen to this. Though they know, this is talking about mankind in general. Verse 32, Romans 1. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Every single human being you meet knows they deserve wrath. They know it. Every now and then it it breaks up through their consciences in the middle of the night with some guilt feeling or some pang of conscience or some terror at something and they don't know quite where's this terror coming from there's a book written some years ago called the denial of death and it was a book about how westerners especially are totally devoted to denying death we will do anything not to confront our own dying and that is a symptom of the other denial that beyond death is something fearful for those who do not know God. So don't buy this. Do not buy this. Of course we live in a modern world. Of course the modern world, lip service, doesn't pay any attention to what Christians say. Of course you go and you go watch all the TV shows, all the movies. We don't even exist. And if we exist, we're knuckleheads. And therefore, the, the whole worldview of the Christians is laughed off. Don't let Satan deceive you. They know. They know. Our job is not to try to figure out some silly, hokey, superficial way we can connect with unbelievers that has nothing to do with the gospel. But to tell them flat out, there is an escape for you. Yes, there is. And then later, five years later, 
they remember that conversation when the Holy Spirit opens their heart to the terror beyond the grave. They've just been gotten the, they've just gotten the word about the, the biopsy. They've just gotten the call. And they're wondering, they're just groping, where is there any rock? Oh, yes. I remember. Back to verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath. What then? But to obtain salvation, not wrath, but salvation. And what makes that word so powerful for me, with my white gown on with a slit down the back, is that it, it is delivered here with such absolute certainty. Not, you might reach salvation, or you might escape wrath, or maybe you're, you're not destined for wrath, and maybe you're destined to be happy with God forever, but rather, you are destined, you are appointed for salvation. That decision has been made in heaven. It's over. It's fixed. You are safe. It's destined. It's appointed. I haven't set you for anything else than glory and salvation. How how do we know the verse carries that much weight? Like certain because God decreed it. How, How do we know that? We know it because... Let's go back to chapter 1 again. Chapter 1 is the great preparation for chapter 5. Chapter 1, this time, let's look at verse 4 and 5. Paul says to these people, whom he just said, you are not destined for wrath. You are appointed and destined for salvation. He says in verse 4, we know, brothers, loved by God, he has chosen you. He knows that. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) He looks at these people and says, I know you are elect. God has chosen you. You're His. You're not appointed, therefore, for wrath. You're appointed for salvation. God chose you. How does He know that? Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He saw in them responses to the gospel message. I mean, you think America is pagan? <laughs> Thessalonica was pagan. We're just shot through with religious influences. Thessalonica, zero Christian influence. None. It was thoroughly sensual and thoroughly pagan. And these people, on hearing the gospel, were turned upside down. And Paul saw it, and he knew that faith, authentic, genuine, and verse 6 kind of ready to suffer with joy kind of faith. Verse 6 matters here. Ready to suffer with joy kind of faith. That is the mark of election. That's what he saw. Acts 13, 48 puts it like this. This is Luke commenting on Paul's experience in preaching. The Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord 
and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. If you are a Thessalonian pagan, zero Christian influence, loving, sleeping around, going to the temples, have a religion that gives vent to your groin, and you believe in a Messiah who calls you to come and die and deny yourself in order that you might escape the wrath to come, and you start suffering with joy because you know Him, you're elect. That's what Paul concluded. You're elect. And therefore, I speak to you with authority. You are not destined for wrath. You are destined for salvation. So here I am, John Piper, sitting alone, my white robe on, and God delivers that word. And then the question arises, how can that be? Because sitting there, I know John Piper is a sinner. I deserve wrath. I deserve wrath. And not just for the sins that I committed a long time ago. I deserve wrath because of the sins from yesterday. I deserve wrath because of the sins this morning. So how can can God just say, no wrath for you, sinner? How can He do that? When Chuck said to me in the truck after I had given him two or three passages and prayed and we were just sitting in silence for a long time, he looked at me and said, got any more texts for me? He was not asking for sentimental, superficial feel-good, greeting card condolences that say nice things about Alex Stedham. Don't tell me my son was nice. This is no help to me whatsoever. I raised him. He's a sinner. Parents know better. John, I need a rock. I need a rock for a sinner's son. I need a rock with a cleft in it. I need a rock with some place where he can hide right now. Right now. One day into eternity. Do you have anything like that? Oh, we do. We're the only people who do. I mean, other religions can do loads of good things in the world. They can. They just can't do this. Which is the only thing that matters in the end. Do you have a, do you have a safe place for Alex, John? Can you give me a word, a solid word, not that says nice things about my son and we have a nice eulogy at the funeral, blah, blah, blah. I wonder, he's a sinner, he's facing a holy God. Is there any hope for my son? Yes, I do. Because the text 
continues in verse 9, through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are not appointed for wrath. You are appointed for salvation, Alex, through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? No wrath through Jesus. Salvation through Jesus. Through Jesus. What does that mean? Just keep reading, right? Who died for us. That's how. God is a God of wrath to be sure. But oh, so much bigger, so much more fundamental, so much at the core. He is a God who contrives to rescue sinners from his wrath and does it by sending Christ to die for us. It says, Christ died for us. This is the rock. This is the rock. This is the rock with a cleft in it where Alex is at this moment as I speak, hiding. And as God walks around the rock, he smiles. And no wrath for Alex in eternity. No wrath for me in eternity. No wrath for you. If you're in the rock, if you're in the cleft, asbestos. No fire can harm you. It just is like a laser show of glory as you watch it. So died for us in what sense? Let's keep reading. So that whether we live like I'm still alive ten years on, post-cancer maybe, Or whether you die like Alex did six weeks ago, and we all will. Nevertheless, we will live with him. So live or die, you live with him. So what does it mean that he died for us? He died for us so that in him we will be with him forever. No wrath, only salvation. So the meaning of salvation in this verse is with Jesus forever. With Jesus forever. I mean, there are other good things about salvation. Like, we don't get sick anymore. We don't die anymore. All tears wiped away. We will be with one another forever. These are all glories. But the best thing about salvation is what verse 10 says. Namely, we will be with Him forever. So, He dies in our place, takes our punishment absorbs the wrath of God so that we might have His righteousness and be in the cleft or in the rock forever. No wrath, only Jesus. Forever because of Jesus. No wrath, only Jesus. Forever because of Jesus. Now, you have, because of the last 30 minutes or so, you have in your mind a simple, unfathomable, precious, solid, unshakable, go-to word from God for your biopsy announcement or when you're standing beside 
a precious friend who gets the dreaded phone call. You have one. God has not appointed you for wrath. But for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you so that whether you live or die, wake or sleep, you will live with him. Can you memorize that this afternoon? Preach it to yourself over and over again. Verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. And be ready in season and out of season, I'm adding, to speak that truth first to yourself. You, you get up feeling gung-ho for Jesus in the morning? Probably not. I don't. I have to preach to me. I go to the Bible or go to some memorized go-to portions and preach them to me. Do that for yourself. Do it for the dying. Do it for the grieving. But don't wait for the crisis. People in this church right now, right now, need you to say this to them. Or the people that didn't make it today, for some reason, they need you to go to them and say, we heard some amazing news on Sunday. Just eyeball them, eyeball them right into their heart. Say it. Say it. Husbands and wives, part of what you ought to do for each other is, maybe you've heard somebody say, preach the gospel to each other. You say, oh, that's weird. I'm not a preacher. That's what John's doing now from the pulpit. No, no. What that means is, you come home one day, either one of you, husband or wife, and you say, I got some amazing news today at work. Really? What is it? You, Noel, <laughs> are not appointed for wrath. You're appointed for salvation through Jesus Christ who died for you so that whether you wake or sleep, you'll live with him. Isn't that good news? Every wife needs to hear that from her husband. And husbands need to hear it when they're in a funk. <laughs> you know the story about Martin Luther when he was so discouraged his wife was ticked off at him for being discouraged all the time, and so she came down one day dressed in a funeral garb, all black, and, and he, he said to her, Who died? And she said, God did. And he said, God cannot die. And she said, Well, then would you quit acting like he did? That's good preaching. That's Every husband, I'm... Speaking out of experience, needs his wife to preach the gospel to him. So don't wait for the crisis. Do it for one another. So I'll close by... Now, one more thing before I, before I give you... I look at you and just give you this promise for Jubilee's next five years. Don't only say it. Don't only say those verses to believers. Offer them to unbelievers. There's a difference. If I look at you and say, you are not destined for wrath, I, I can't do that to an unbeliever. I can't say that. I, he's not believing yet. 
I don't know if he's in Christ. I don't know if he will be in Christ. I can't say that. But I can offer it to him. Would you like to hear this word spoken to you by Almighty God? I could do that for you. I could say it on his behalf. Just believe. Believe. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So this is free. I mean, this is, this is what we have most importantly. Christianity is good for nations. It's good for neighborhoods. It's good for families in a thousand ways. It is. But this is the main way it's good. If it's not good this way, everything else is a hoax. So we offer people, there's a deliverance. There's a way to have an eternity with the maker of the universe, Jesus Christ. May I offer this to you? That's what we do for unbelievers. But here I'm speaking, I'm assuming, mainly to believers. And you, you're just finishing five years of faithfulness. And this is the rock on which you need to stand in the good times and especially the bad times. And so, Jubilee, you have not been appointed for wrath. I mean, if this building blew up this afternoon, somebody just hated what's going on here, put a bomb in the basement, blew it to smithereens, that would not be wrath on you. It would not be wrath. Almighty God would take that, and with this people who are the church, make something glorious. He would. May it not happen, but I'm just saying. You have not been appointed for wrath. You have been appointed for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you. So that whether you wake or like Alex, sleep, you will live with Him. Let's pray. So Father in Heaven, we love the Gospel We love Christ. We love the cross. We love the Word of God that delivers to us these spectacular, stabilizing truths to put under our feet like a rock when everything around us is collapsing. So we praise You for Christ. We praise You for His finished substitutionary work on our behalf. And we ask, I ask now for Jubilee, that you would put their feet on the rock of the gospel, keep them in love of the gospel. May they spread the gospel throughout these neighborhoods with great effectiveness. And would you bring us to a 10-year anniversary, Lord, five years from now, where we could do this again with extraordinary remembrances of great victories. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.